Yeah, this whole thing of memes. I, yeah, I, yeah. You know, the, the, an image and a, and a very sort of an inscription, a very short ver verbal presentation of an idea with an image working together. I see a very much of a, a magical component to that. Yeah. And the best resistance to this is to learn about how it works. Mm-hmm. Just like you learn about how advertising works. And then, of course, advertising, when you see it on television or whatever, doesn't particularly work on your mind anymore. You see what they're doing. So you're, you see the man behind the curtain. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, in humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Stephen Flowers to discuss his latest book, The Occult and National Socialism, The Symbolic, Scientific, and Magical Influences on the Third Reich. Dr. Flowers debunks some of the misconceptions that have grown around occult influences of National Socialism. He also discusses its Volkish foundations, the dangers of othering, propaganda as magic, and so much more. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Stephen Flowers, PhD, received his doctorate in Germanic languages and medieval studies from the University of Texas at Austin and studied the history of occultism and runology at the University of Göttingen. He is the author of more than 50 books, including Revival of the Runes, and his latest publication is The Occult and National Socialism, The Symbolic, Scientific, and Magical Influences on the Third Reich. Dr. Flowers, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm, I'm happy to have you here, and I am very much looking forward to this conversation. I really enjoyed your book, The Occult and National Socialism, and I think it's a very important book. It's a serious work of scholarship, and I think you correct a lot of false information regarding the Third Reich and occultism. And I also wanted to add, I think you make some really valuable insights along the way. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So I... I feel compelled to do this. And at the beginning of the book, you write a note to the reader. And I want to do something similar here for the audience, just because of the world we live in today. You, you, you give a note to the reader that you are not a national socialist. You are not a Nazi. You are not promoting Nazi ideology. And neither is this podcast. I am not a national socialist or a Nazi either. Your, your, your book is a serious piece of scholarship. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to be as objective as humanly possible. And I think you did a good job at it. So I just wanted to be clear about that from the very beginning. So I, I thought we would start with the kind of a background here. There has been this sort of ongoing, I'm going to use myth here, and we can talk a little bit later about how you use the term myth in the book, but there's this kind of myth of the Nazi program as being deeply, deeply embedded in occultism. And you note some books, Trevor Ravencroft's The Spear of Destiny and The Morning of the Magicians by, is it Louis or Louis Apoels and Jacques Berger? 
Bergier, uh, Bergier. Bergier. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I know that there are videos on YouTube <laughs> about this and there's oh, even gosh. on Amazon. And you say all of this is very sensationalistic. Mm -hmm. And I think your book is trying to unpack and get at the truth of things. But you also say, and I think this is one of the most, one of the most important points in my money that you make in this book is that this is a kind of a diversion. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak to what kind of diversion is it? Well, if we can blame the, de the devil or we're kind of a cult, mysterious, sinister forces in the universe that are hiding behind that tree over there, then the finger for the, when, when someone says, oh, the Nazis, that's evil, that's terrible, I will ask sometimes, you know, well, what's so evil? But what did they do that's so evil that makes sets them apart? And of course, it will come down to correctly Auschwitz and, and mass murder of the Jewish people, et cetera, et cetera, and all our other people, all kinds of situations. Okay. Well, wh where did that motive, when you look at it, it's a crime, crime against humanity. It is a crime. Well, let's approach a crime like a FBI profiler approaches a, a criminal. What motivates them? How do they do it? What's what's behind it? What is the the mindset? It would be mind hunters and say, who are these people? And why did they do what they did individually, collectively, et cetera? And we do the history of anti-Semitism and the direction of that sort of thing. Well, you have to look back to the Middle Ages you don't look to pagans or Satanists for a motive to be anti-Semitic. It's to Christianity. It is to the churches of of Europe, whether it's the Russian Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, centuries and centuries of programmatic anti-Semitism conditioned the European mind to accept this sort of criminality, but yet they, uh, those people will all, those people who are actually culpable will always divert it, point it away, say, oh, it's the devil that did it, or it's this cult that did it, et cetera, because the thing they fear the most is having the finger pointed at the actual criminal, historically speaking. And so without the, the Middle Ages and its legacy, Auschwitz would have been impossible. People would have seen, this is ridiculous. What are you talking about? This is a ludicrous. But it all fit because of centuries of conditioning, centuries of conditioning in this direction. And the thing that set the Nazis apart, to a great extent, is their incredible technology and scientific acumen in the commission of these crimes. The Russian czar probably would have used the same thing, but he, he all he had was well, there were Cossacks at his command for pogroms and such things, but that's probably just a lack of technology. You know, his motive and, 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 and direction in that story is, would be similar. So yeah, well, I, I, I appreciate all of that. And, you know, you know, I teach religious studies and that's mm -hmm. something that I always point out in the class. I'm like, you know, especially, you know, I say, you know, there's no mistake that Nazi Germany was also the land of Luther and, you know, Luther, mm -hmm. you know, was 
horribly anti-Semitic. One of his books was The Jews and Their Lies. And something I learned out of your book that I never knew, or maybe I forgot, I don't know, but that the Kristallnacht was meant to coincide with Luther's birthday. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. And of course, uh, also the theme of vengeance, as far as understanding the whole Nazi motive motivation is important that's why the the v weapons right it just so happens that vengeance and vergeltung german word for vengeance uh, we'll start with the same letter that's why the v1 v2 etc and on when uh, hitler didn't decide we are going to liquidate the jews we are going to do that uh, until pearl harbor when the united states declared war on germany that was the that was the moment when it went from standard kind of repression, concentration camps to an actual mass murder agenda because he was of the belief that the Jewish, that about this Jewish conspiracy and such that caused Germany to lose the First World War. And that's the thing he could never, ever forget. And that's what motivated him and the Nazis, because those were all World War I veterans who felt betrayed by how that war ended, because they weren't defeated in battle, yet they lost their whole country and and as such. So they were very feeling very betrayed. And that's something that we learned, of course, as when we were smarter, the government was, our government was smarter. At the end of the Second World War, we did very good programs to change the cultures of both Japan and Germany, who were we have to face it. They were they were war-like nations, and through the smart application of foreign policy and and and, and not doing what we did at the end of the First World War, we preserved the the peace very very well with those nations certainly. But uh, that sense of betrayal that really fueled that passion, that hate, you know. Mm. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, and, I think that, and and the idea that Jewish conspiracy as being the source of our misery is again a medieval notion towards the the so-called the Jews being the killers of Christ, right? Right, right, right. And so that whole thing that that's where it starts and it doesn't end. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Coming up with the... excuses for it, but you know the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was, you know, the the ancient blood libel that Jews mm-hmm. were sacrificing Christian children. And, you know, one of the classes I teach is a critical thinking. I teach logic as well. Mm-hmm. And there's the logical fallacy of poisoning the well. And I always kind of give the history of that because that fallacy goes back to the time of the Black Plague where people were saying that it was Jews that were poisoning the water wells. Mm-hmm. Sure. They were blamed for any misfortune. And then see where it comes down to the religious uh, dimension of how medieval, how the medieval mind, the medieval Christian mind is that uh, there is no power but of God, so says Paul, right? And so God is in control of everything. So therefore, if anything bad happens, it's either because God is visiting it upon us to punish us. Why? For our lack of faith, for our sin. Uh, Attila, 
Attila the Hun was called the scourge of God. What does that mean? Well, he was here to whip the population, to punish them. He was sent by God to punish the unfaithful and so forth. So everything that happened was God's will. God did it or allowed it. And so if the the Jews are, and so they say, why are we being punished? Well, one of the popular answers was, we're allowing the Jews to be among us. We're allowing the Jews to live. God really mandates that we we not do so. The Anglo-Saxon, the ancient English kings, when a part of their oath was to avenge Christ, to avenge the death of Christ, was one of their items in their oath. So it's just so deeply ingrained that it is. it comes to be the explanation. It's like a person who is t- constantly programmed by his environment, his parents, his school, whatever, to think a certain way. And when given the opportunity, they act on those thoughts. And it works historically and collectively as well. Yeah. Yeah. In preparation for this interview, I was speaking with a friend of mine who I went to grad school with, and she took a class on the Holocaust. And this was taught by a Jewish professor. And one of the things that he observed is that because of this background that we're talking about, that the Holocaust could have happened pretty much anywhere in Europe. I think what set Germany apart is, you know, several other things, but primarily mm-hmm. what you were talking about is the world, you know, the effects of World War One and how that ended, right. you know, mm-hmm. but I think that's important to keep in mind that this could have happened anywhere. And I think that, you know, we always need to look at ourselves in the mirror rather than pointing mm-hmm. outwards all the time, mm-hmm. you know. Well, people don't, because it's, I don't, some people love to harp on these facts or these ideas because people like to, uh, some self-flagellation about America is not so great, that kind of line of thinking. But, you know, it is true that most of the eugenics programs that the Nazis used were taken directly from American ideologues. Hitler had a portrait behind his desk of Henry Ford. Henry Ford was his hero. Henry Ford wrote a whole great work that was in the Dearborn newspaper and then put into a book form called The International Jew. And his his hero worship of Ford went so far as to say, well, Ford made a car for the people. So I want to make a car for the people. And that's the birth of the Volkswagen, the people's car. So, uh, you know, they, he was a total programmatic enactment of those ideas. But they, were, they weren't necessarily German ideas. They were uh, used and, and, and adopted. So that's blame lies where it lies. But the, the ideas were pre-thought out by other people and imported Right. And let's kind of dig in a little bit to kind of move the conversation to uh, Mm -hmm. some of the bigger parts of the book, because you, you know, you note that, you know, there is this diversion and that, you know, focusing on the pagan or occult influences is the kind of diversion, but there are some influences that come in. And, um, you know, in the subtitle of the book, you've got the symbolic, the scientific and the magical. 
So I thought, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we can dig in and see each one of these a little bit and let's just take them in order, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing that I think we should probably address is the, the, the Volk, the Volkish movement as well, because I think mm -hmm. that's the fourth aspect here. So I'm not entirely sure what is the best place to start. Do you want to start with the Volkish movement or with the symbolic, you're the expert. Yeah. So I'm going to let you <laughs> yeah. okay. the, the best place to dig in. The Volkish is a German word, of course, but it's as they, uh, the international word for that idea is nationalist. Na that's why the, the Nazi party is called the National Socialist German Workers Party. And I hear this word, Nazis, thrown around constantly. We are it's folkloristic at this point to say anybody you don't agree with, they're a Nazi. Okay. So I thought, well, I really need to define Nazi in very clear terms. And one of the best ways to do that is to actually put the points of the National Socialist program and say, here, here's what they stood for, just, to, just so that you can see the whole dimension, but it's summed up in the name of the party, national, national, that German word for that is folkish, folkish. It is, means that it is a biological construct, not a political construct, but a biological one. What people of common birth, the Latin word natio, I am born, and it's a the source of our word for natural, innate, and all of these cognates to Latin national. So national socialist, socialist, the common good before the individual good. That's how they define it in the program. German, where, by the way, that's just so that you'll know, it's German nation, German folk that we're talking about to exclude others. And to be a, and then they define who is a German folk member. They are Christians. It is defined there, says Christian. Why do they use that? To explicitly exclude the Jews. So you had to be a Christian. They favor, it says in there, positive Christianity. We may get into that or not, but it, it's a specific kind of view of Christianity, which doesn't mean just upbeat and positive, but rather it's historically accurate according to their dogma or doctrine. Right. Uh, yeah, I did, I did and, want to get into that. I have that as one of yeah. my questions is the positive so Christianity. That's, you know, they explicitly in the program say, you've got to be Christian, you've got to be, you know, a German and, and so forth. These are all, in these few words, defines really their whole worldview and, and, and how it can be understood. Then you have to be a worker. That is not earn your money or get your money from things like earning interest. That's not a worker. You have to, again, explicitly says you must work with your hands or with your mind, but you must work, which is also typical of, of socialism, of Marxist socialism. People forget that part of that back in the, the day, you had it was illegal in the Soviet Union, for example, to be unemployed. You had to be employed, you know, and so that sort of you had to be a worker. And 
and it's a party. You know, it's a, it's it's a organization with a membership. Only 10% perhaps of the people in Germany, just like in the Soviet Union, only about 10% of the population were ever members of the National Socialist Party. It was something you had to earn your way into, be invited into. It was a it was a exclusive group, as was the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. It was not oh yeah we're all communists we're all members of the Communist Party. No, uh-uh. you have to be invited to that. You are on you're in with the in crowd. You are the new aristocracy based on ideology, biology, whatever their their criteria are. And so folkish things are is a biological construct and understood as that. And they believed that everything about a person was determined by genetics, biology, race, if you will, et cetera, their character, their ability, their everything. Of course, it's just, again, that is an occult idea. There is no objective scientific evidence for such a belief that your spiritual value, your intellectual value, everything about you that's important is determined by race. Mm. That was their fundamental belief there. And that's part of this sort of folkish idea in the Nazi mentality. Now, the Nazis were a generational phenomenon. Germany at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century was a land enamored with the idea of reform. The, the so-called reform movements were were incredibly powerful. Ideas from, from nudism to natural foods to organic, alternative communities, all the things. All the things we associate in this country, especially with the 60s, you know, the whole hippie movement. It's what was something that was in the air and in the everything in Germany and Central Europe at the beginning about 1880. And all of the Nazi leaders were born, in the, most of them in the 1890, 1890 thereabouts. And so they were born into this kind of thinking. The Nazis were rabid anti-vivisectionists. They believe uh, Goering was like on fire for this idea of an, uh, prevention of animal cruelty and so forth. Now they would experiment on humans, <laughs> concentrate, but not animals. You know that was oh they really had an aversion to that. Why? That's not, um, Hitler himself was a teetotaling anti-vivisectionist, vegetarian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was and ask. all of those characteristics, yeah, all those characteristics were part of this reform movement. They weren't Nazi ideas, although they promoted them and thought they were good. They didn't mandate them, except that the animal cruelty thing became law, and the German laws against animal cruelty are essentially unchanged from you know the Nazi era because. They were good ones. They were very good laws to prevent this kind of thing. And they also believed that cruelty or bad conditions for your animals that you were going to slaughter and eat, if you were going to do that, eating them conveyed to you sickness, every kind of sickness, bad health, cancer, whatever, or just spiritual illness. So these were kind of ideas that were part of the whole mentality. So, and these things all played into the 
this idea of folkishness, that this was the German way, the German culture and ideas and so forth. So it's always a mistake when you're thinking about individual people or countries and nations to to demonize people, you know, and say, oh, they're just evil, totally evil. The propaganda against Germany during the war is what you might expect, but things like there was this occultist named Louis Spence in England, and he wrote a book called The Occult Causes of the Present War, and it was like a super popular, but that's where the, the genesis of a lot of the strange beliefs about Nazi occultism are generated. But he comes out and says things like, well, he analyzes Hitler's lack of character based on his, the structure of his face and skull and says that the Germans are a—it's totally Nazi thinking on the part of an Englishman, right? But it's totally and fundamentally racist, and just like what a Nazi would say about one of their demons or bugaboos, he says about the, the Nazis. So this Nazi kind of thinking is something everyone is— prone to, but when you then say only Nazis are bad, that then, talking about this diversion idea, that then liberates current criminal activities and say, well, we may be doing awful, terrible things, but at least we're not Nazis. Don't call us that. We're not that, because that's like Satan himself, and so we're not that. So we're that, therefore, we're somehow innocent, and we're above reproach, because we're not that. And that's a dangerous way of thinking in my mind, so that you then don't see the similar kinds of patterns when they manifest in your in your midst. And right. so that's part of the, the 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 use of this demonization of the the Nazis. It's curious to see that a lot of this we might think, or a lot of people think, that the the German people continue to be. And they are the only ones that believe this, apparently, in the denazification program that we did there. We said, oh, you're bad, you're warlike, you're this, that, and the other. And they kind of believe it even to this day. But uh, the BBC does a, uh, a, a, na a survey of national image of all countries or most countries of the world. And the German nation, the German people, are come out at the highest level on these surveys. They're international surveys run by the BBC about their honesty, their hardworkingness, you know, all these kind of characteristics. And Germans come at the far and away at the top of all of these lists. So the the, the image that sometimes people, some people might have of Germany. And Germans, it is it doesn't stick. It's a, the Nazis. And it was kind of the way I, I grew up. I'm a kid of the generation. All of my friends uh, were all World War II veterans for the most part. So we were the sons of people who fought in the war. And it was very clear uh, we got in our homes that the Germans weren't bad. The Nazis were bad, you know. Typically, in the American wartime propaganda, the Japanese people were often demonized. Even the cartoons, when I was growing up, we still were watching cartoons from the 40s, you know, on TV. And the way they portrayed the Japanese people was very racist, you know. But the Germans, not so.
it was very clear. Of course, half of our army, our own army, was was were German Germans ethnically. Eisenhower himself, so that didn't really affect things as much as one might think. Although, at the time, especially among the English, uh, and one of the things that came about, or I, I as a kid, I learned this. So, what's uh, why are the German and Nazis so bad? So, well, they thought they were a master race, you know, and. Of course, it's implied that everyone knows we we are the master race, <laughs> the English or the American or whatever. It wasn't that the idea was bad, you know, or incorrect, but to be an idea. But it was the fact that there there they were so arrogant mm. and so so arrogant that they think they are that when everyone knows we are. Mm. You know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. that the idea wasn't. It was it was misapplied, right? And so thus becomes a a motive for fighting and so forth. Yeah. So uh, there was you a know, lot of that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think it's a really important point. This sort of otherizing of others. I and that's something that really came out in your book is, you know, that we're kind of engaged. You know, people who do that are engaging in the same activity that the Nazis did by sort of dehumanizing the others and you know and i think your point with you know this sort of saying the germans is arrogant you know what came to my mind is you know that manifest destiny is kind of arrogant if you stop and think about it and it's also connected to genocide Yes, of course. Yes. And, and even the, the idea of the a popular word that's on everybody's lips nowadays is white and whiteness, etc. And that is really a Saxon-English category. Mm. The Americans considered Germans as not being white. Right. You know, the Anglo-Saxon, the, the, the wasp, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant of America, they, they, they are the ones that started using this word as a the way it's used. And uh, there was something on the Internet I saw not too long ago. This is a picture, a photograph of a, a woman on a porch. And it was in California, actually. And it's, it has a big banner sign that says, uh, Slavs move on. This is a white neighborhood. Wow. You know, and it's like that. You know, so it's not the fact that you have blonde hair, blue eyes, and you know, pale skin that doesn't make you white, right? You know, not in the Anglo-Saxon you know mentality of the of the colonial period. I guess we could you know say that. Yeah. But you know, and so yeah, it's it's not something peculiar to Germans for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So one of the things before we move to something else, I wanted to ask Mm -hmm. uh, in relation to the ish or volkism, you refer to symbolic volkism. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could say a few words about what that is. In my notes here, I've got, I think it's identity, solidarity, and purpose, Mm -hmm. and then the National Socialist Party and Hitler. (laughs) Uh, But I want to see if you uh, can maybe expand upon my notes there. Sure. Well, folkism is, to my way of thinking, is primarily a a symbolic quality. And and as a symbolic quality, 
it is not necessarily a negative, bad, or criminal thing at all. I mean, it is the myth. The people have, we have a, some a common his, history, I'll say a people like the Germans, or, uh, Anglo-Saxons, et cetera, have a common language, history, uh, mythology. We have our own gods. We still invoke them on a weekly basis. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the old Germanic gods, there they are, still alive, etc. So these are symbolic things uh, that, that make for an identity and a, a, a quality of symbolic environment or religion, if, if you will, in the sense that it's a culture, just like you have things in nations such as Japan, you know, you have everything is Japanese, the language is Japanese, the religion, you have the Japanese religion, or when we talk about history and talk about Greek mythology, Greek religion, Greek language, it all is a holistic, symbolic thing. Now, where the Nazis got completely off track with this is that they started in the wake of Darwin and the 19th century science and evolution started to think in totally and exclusively biological terms. Mm. But that is, that, that is detrimental and bad, and it will not work. You know, when you say, oh, I can't have, uh, associate with this person because of their biology is wrong. A great example historically is the nation or the culture of Egypt, of ancient Egypt. We look back on them and say, well, some of the pharaohs and and so forth, some of them were Nubians or Libyans, Greeks later on, but they were all considered Egyptian because they adhered to and were a part of Egyptian culture, religions. The symbolic world of Egypt held everyone together as Egyptians, despite or with no respect to or little respect to ethnicity. And that's really the way most cultures in antiquity worked. That's where the, the Greeks absorbed gods from all kinds of different people and made them Greek. And most peoples, uh, when you look at them historically, the way they really interacted with their environment socially, culturally, et cetera, were very in, inclusive. I, um, I was trained very much in Indo-European thought and, and uh, scholarship. And there we see that the Indo-European people, so often demonized as conquerors and so forth and so on, were the most xenophilic people you can ever imagine because they always well, they they came to a place, they did take it over, but they interacted you know, on every level, including marriage and everything else, with the local population. They made them a part of what they were doing, and this came about, their, their conquest, if you will, their success, let's use that word, their success came about not through coercion, although that could be a part of it, but through prestige, they did things from fighting to sacrificing to everything in a more prestigious way, in a way that people wanted to imitate because it was more successful and more beautiful and so forth. It just won people over uh, almost universally. 
and that's so the languages and other things, religion, mythologies don't change permanently through and through acts of coercion and violence. They change and evolve in accordance with prestige. Mm. Mm. And so you can't, just like in the Soviet Union, if you you say, you must do this, and you, if you do not do this, behave like this, you will be put in a gulag or whatever. Well, people shut up, they do what they're told, but their minds aren't changed. Mm. You know, they don't come to believe that. Even the party members didn't believe it. You know, it it was a racket. And that's one of the things that I try to impress, not over and over, but that that groups like the Bolsheviks or the Nazis, et cetera, are best understood if you understand how gangs, how gangland works, how gangsterism works, because that's where people like, you you can see the the Nazis' behavior, how they looted art, they did this, they did that, they're they're behaving like a bunch of gangsters, you know, and and enriching themselves and, and so forth, and confiscating people's property, especially the Jewish people, et cetera, and taking it over for themselves. It was a complete racket, you know? And that's what motivates and moves a lot of these people to do what they do is personal, individual, power, and wealth. And power is greater than wealth because hey, they own the whole land. They own the whole country. They can do anything they want with anyone or anything in it. And so that's, that's, the, that's the biggest racket of all. You know, you don't have to worry about this turf or that or this kind of scam or that. We take it all over. And so that's one of the things that people, I think, would be very valuable to understand about these political movements because they get clouded in ideology. Like, oh, the Nazis believe this or the Bolsheviks believe that. All couched in high-sounding ideas or idealism etc but that's not what moved those people individually or as a group yeah now that would be now are you referring to just the leaders of the national socialist party or everyone because one of the questions i wanted to ask was about Mm -hmm. the use of symbols to persuade people Mm -hmm. so because i found it your discussion of symbolism and connecting it to magic i found really interesting and at one point you referred to the third reich as an empire of applied symbology mm-hmm. right well that's even in a uh, the, the the worst kinds of totalitarian regimes one can imagine still in the the, the support and cooperation, willing, enthusiastic cooperation of the masses is absolutely essential because say that the party and its leadership are constitute 10% of the population. Well, that's your army's going to be drawn from this, everything. No, you've got to control the masses as well, as much as possible, despite the fact that it's a one-party totalitarian state. They still want and need that. And, of course, Hitler himself and was didn't take over, much to his chagrin. He wanted to be like Mussolini or something you know, and take over the government kind of by force. But he was reduced to having to do it in a democratic uh, way as far as they had. 
at that time in the Weimar Republic. And so it wasn't force, it was political maneuvering. So you, he needed to be able to move the masses. I, One of the best features of this particular book is the way, a section in there where I do a analysis, not of everything in it, but of his book, Mein Kampf, mm. and analyze it for occult uses and, and motivations and insights, which he has many because he, was, he wrote the book basically to convince any would-be competitor or, or, or member of the party that he was the smartest man in the room and that no one could match him in his acumen with regard to these uh, these traits. And so he talks about things like we have our meetings at night because the, at night the, the mind of the masses is more susceptible to suggestion. Mm. Or our banners are red primarily because I've noted how the communists have their red banners and they are really motivational. They, they really move the masses. So that color and the display of that color must be primary. These are the kinds of things that are in that book when they are purely occult ideas. But one of the great things I think that I try to point out is that a lot of the things when we define the occult as being a, an unestablished or disestablished idea in general, that a lot of the ideas that the Nazis pioneered with regard to all of this have become standard fare. And when you take a course in uh, advertising or branding and all of that sort of thing, they mastered that. Essentially, Hitler mastered it because he was a designer. He, desi he designed the flag, he designed the swastika just the way it looked and so forth. So they, these are ways, very magical ways in which these logos and things like that and everything in the whole party apparatus was 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 designed, how the uniforms looked like, the fact that there were uniforms, because see, that sends the message that we are disciplined, we are in control, we know what we are doing. We are a disciplined force. Party people wore uniforms, et cetera. And when you see the opposition, the Communist Party, they were just in the raggedy overcoats, you know, pack, <laughs> nothing, no uniform. In that sense, that in the time period where they were fighting in the streets, so the very fact that we have these uniforms and that we look this way is sending a semiotic message to the masses that you know we can be trusted, we are in control, we are disciplined. And of course, most of them were veterans, so that's just kind of what they had in their closets <laughs> left over. Right. But, so, yeah, yeah, I found that, that really, really important, and in the sense that when people. I think typically think of magic, they think of, you know, kind of specific rituals and maybe invocation mm -hmm. of spirits and things like that. But, yeah. you know, the way you wrote about this, I mean, number one, you you said that Mein Kampf was the most powerful grimoire <laughs> of the movement. Mm -hmm. And that I have your definition of magic here. You know, it's the art of translating symbols, be it verbal or graphic into phenomena, events, occurrences, or thoughts and feelings in a target object. And I wrote right underneath that propaganda as magic. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And he, uh, Hitler was one of the books I have finished and it will be published sometime soon. It is a whole study of the German Weimar, German, the so-called philosopher king of Weimar, a man named Ernst Schertl, whose book called Magie, Magic, was actually well, was given to Hitler at uh, uh, 1923, just prior to the putsch and when he went into prison. And it was found, this book was found in the bunker. He had it with him to the end with annotation or just of things that were highlighted in the book. Now, Ernst Schertl, this is my most important thing about him, is that he was not a Nazi. He was a, he was stripped of his PhD in philosophy and persecuted by the Nazis, and he was absolutely no way, shape, or form sympathetic to the Nazis. He was a sexual liberation guy and all this. But Hitler used this book. And so in my book about him, I introduce and put a whole thing in context and translate the book in question, which has been translated, but by R2-D2 or some other robot. So it's <laughs> like a very bad translation. So anyway, persons like that and then thoughts like that, the magical, actual occult magical thoughts did play a part. When you read Mein Kampf, you know this guy has read things like this, and he's aware of how it works. But he's not going to be out. You won't find Hitler, you know, in the basement somewhere, you know, invoking Satan or ringing bells and lighting candles. These magical operations were massive. And you can see films of it. Let's see Triumph of the Will. See the staging of the of the people and, and the use of mass movement, just the movement. I remember as a kid, a little kid in elementary school, getting a strange feeling. We'd have uh, fire drills. You know, they would march us out in columns into the field outside the church, outside the, the, the school, et cetera. And just seeing people moving in columns and, and, and in a kind of a disciplined, orderly way has an effect on the mind. And so they, you can see their rituals were full of that sort of thing. And some of the rituals that they designed and created, we still love today. Mm -hmm. Example, the torch relay for the Olympics and the lighting of the Olympic torch were invented by the Nazis. Wow. And well, we still do them because it's a really cool ritual, you know? <laughs> so, but they were, that's the kind of thing they did. They thought about every detail of how they're presenting their program and their agenda to the people. And so that's how the magic works. So, the, so logos, branding, appearances of, of, of symbols in action and motion and all of these things were something that they were, you know, very aware of. It wasn't just Hitler. A lot of Himmler and others were deeply into the same kind of things. So, yeah. Well, and I think that that's a, another point in terms of the the period where we are now and the concerns often of a new, you know, that there will be a repeat, right, <laughs> of, of this. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking for a long time that these logos and everything that you mentioned, that these are a form of magic, that they are mm -hmm. influencing how we think. And I feel that 
to avoid repeating that the atrocities of the past, we have to focus not just on the anti-Semitism, but we have to look within, mm -hmm. but also look at how we're being manipulated as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this whole thing of memes, I, yeah, I, yeah. you know, the, the, an image and a, and a very sort of an inscription, a very short ver verbal presentation of an idea with an image working together. I see a very much of a, a magical component to yeah. that. And the best resistance to this is to learn about how it works. Mm-hmm. Just like you learn about how advertising works. And then, of course, advertising, when you see it on television or whatever, doesn't particularly work on your mind anymore. You see what they're doing. So you you see the man behind the curtain, mm. you know. And so the, the, you, you render the whole operation impotent. It's, it, it only works on unconsciously. Now, the two sides of that are this, that one Somebody could just be unaware of how it's what's going on, and so they don't pay attention, and so it works on them. The other and more sinister side is that people might know that it's working, but they simply choose to ignore it and choose to embrace it regardless of what they know. And I have a section, a little section in there just to highlight the the the, the power of embracing weird ideas. <laughs> you know, I see this on the internet all the time that people will, you, you know, you know, this person must know better than to espouse what he's just said, right. but it's just so there's a romance of just embracing something that's so strange and weird that, that, that makes the person embracing it feel special and apart and elite you know, because they have this weird idea. And then, of course, the others don't have it, which is the truth, the hidden unknown truth. And so I am better than they are. And I have this special power because of the, how do you know that? Well, it's so weird. You know, it's got to be something grand and special. And I'm not saying that that whole construct I just threw out there is something that's totally illegitimate, evil, bad, or whatever, but it is a something to consider. Yeah. You know, when you choose, when you choose to believe what you believe, you know, yeah, yeah, Where yeah. Does it go? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, there are a couple of ways that I think about that. And one is I have grown increasingly wary of ideas of awakening and enlightenment, because mm -hmm. that is always associated with at least with the people who make those claims with knowledge and certainty. And mm -hmm. it, I'm always really concerned with that. And my, where I'm at right now is I just embrace the uncertainty and it's like, you know, right. take the, yeah. the idea of Socrates, you know, the only thing I know is that I do not know. Right. But the, the other thing I wanted to comment with what you were just saying is something that came to mind is, and this bothers me a lot is kind of going back to the advertising and the magical effects of advertising is the Super Bowl commercials. How every, the, so many people will tune in just to watch the commercials. And I'm like, but do you understand what's happening here? <laughs> There's, mm -hmm. You know, it, yeah. It, 
and I don't know that they do. I don't know that they do, but it, it bothers me in a very deep level. And I have to admit that I loathe football, but I also <laughs> don't like commercials. So <laughs> uh, it's all bad. But uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's something uh, that's where you will, if you look at advertising before World War II and after, you will see, you know, how they. Well, you remember that you watched the it's a great television or whatever network it was on Mad Men. Did you oh, see yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, there was a moment in there at the early part is about you know Hitler and, and you know something you know about psychology and Freud and, mm -hmm. and you know the, and the you know Don Draper just throws it in the trash. But then of course at the end, right, he's sitting there. That was, He's embracing the Coca-Cola commercial. I could teach the world to sing. That's the punchline of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so uh, they, it's very Mad Men. This uh, Madison Avenue is reluctantly drug into practicing these arts, you know, or because they were just like ordinary Joes of advertising, you know. But then they, you know, you start to because you are trying to become persuasive. Move a person, say, I, I have this dollar in my pocket. I want to get it out of your pocket and put it in my pocket, you know, and this yeah. is how I'm going to do it through this advertising. Then that could be a vote, it could be your dollar, it could be somebody of games, the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really wish more people would be aware of the magic that is operating on all of us, I think. Mm -hmm. So so we, we've talked about the symbolic. The scientific is the, I think you talked about that in terms of the technology, but also in things like the biology. And there was, mm -hmm. uh, would you put the ideas of eugenics, homeopathy, I think would fit into this as well. Sure. Alternative, and that fits with the, the whole reform, you know, movements and everything like right. that. But yeah. yeah. Now, is there, is there anything else in the science? Because in my notes here, I have a couple of things like unusual theories of physics and geology and mm -hmm. pseudo-archaeology. Did sure. all of those affect or influence the development of National Socialism as well? Sure, because the people wanted, uh, going back to the idea of, uh, you know, they wanted, they were revolting against what they felt like the establishment, which they then identified with Jewish, oftentimes Jewish thinking, science, et cetera. For example, Einstein, you say, well, that Einstein, well, he has Jewish physics. Mm -hmm. So we have to have an alternative to relativity and to Einstein, because that's, see, okay. you know, like people are crazy. They, they all think like, well, the, a Jewish person came up with it, therefore it's a product of his Jewishness, so it's bad. You know, so again, program for failure. But so we have to look for another alternative, Aryan physics. And they were thinking like that. So therefore, you have people like Hans Herbiger, the whole world ice, glacial ice theories and yeah. whatever, but become attractive, right? They wish it were true. <laughs> and so they might push it just as a way to, again, oppose their the other, and as they've defined him, and to promote themselves and contrast, et cetera. But these are our occult ideas with occult agendas in the sense that we're trying to 
uh, reconstruct your mind and oppose our enemies and such things. So then it becomes, uh, well, there was this, like in the morning of the magicians, he, uh, these old, the thing, the sources they were using, uh, that there were these world of advanced technology, Atlantis, some previous aeon of the world where the Aryan peoples were on the mountaintops of the great deluge came and on mountaintops they were preserving themselves in Tibet and in the Andes and so then they would look into these regions for signs of this previous civilization and that sort of thing and they spent resources delving into that. Of course, a lot of this was not too much of it because the before the war started, there was just a few years, and then at that in 1939, it becomes totally focused on the war effort, you know. But uh, they had, and a lot of the cult ideas of science are like post-war mythology. That's one of the mm. aspects of the book that I created or made for the structure of it was the idea of, okay, Nazi occultism. Let's look at that. It's got to be in the time period. There's a, a, a lead up, a historical root of it all. Then the actual how it was enacted in the time of National Socialism when the inception of the party about 1920 to its demise in 1945. Then there's a whole other world of Nazi occultism, which is post-war reception of all of these ideas. Some of them pro-Nazi, like, oh, yeah, well, this is great. We want to be just like that. We want to emulate it. We want to do it. And then some of them, of course, like Trevor Ravenscroft or Mourning the Magicians or whatever are great warnings. These are evil people. Everything about them is evil. Look at how occult and strange and satanic it all was, that kind of thing. But in any event, it's mythologies and new mythologies. Now, the whole UFO, Nazis had flying saucers, yeah. you know, and such things. Now, they had incredible technologies, and some of them were enacted, and some of them were just nothing but prototypes. But if you watch the war in Iraq mm-hmm. and our, our wonder weapons we used against it in that war, you will see uh, in general and before that as well. But these are all things that we got the idea from the Nazis for, things like cruise missiles, V-1 rocket. Of course, I, ICBM the, was already the V-2 rocket. Okay, but other things like smart bombs, the Nazis had smart bombs. They had video-guided bombs, mm. missiles that were launched from planes, etc. Now, these things were just experimented with and so forth, but as so legend goes, in Nazi Germany, after the war, there were trains leaving the country, boxcars full of prototypes, patents, reports, you name it. And then, of course, also the scientists that sent us to the moon. That was just the German space program, you know, continued. And so all of these things, for all of that, what I've just mentioned, is the thing that gives people thought. They can say, well, if they had jets like the ME-262, uh, and all these kind of things. They had jet aircraft, but of course they were never really used. 
but they had them. And so then that makes people think, well, maybe they did have alternative propulsion, alternative energy sources. We know they're extremely interested in that because that is what caused them to do many of the things they did with the lack of energy, lack of oil. That's why they needed to get into Russia to get to those oil fields in the Caucasus, et cetera. Uh, and, well, for example, oh, they had no oil. So what did they do? They invented synthetic oil, which we a lot of people use in their cars today. But the, And they had alternative energy. They, they could run a tank on a lump of coal. They'd made a new kind of engine that used the same engine, but the way the energy was delivered to it was an alternative where they used some alternative fuel, things like that. But people knew that. And so that then tweaks the imagination to think, you know, there's flying saucers. And the pro-Nazi kind of post-war, you know, I mean, enthusiasts, nutcase, whatever you want to call them, you know, embrace that idea. Say, yes, the Nazis had all this great superior technology and they were da-da-da. And so they embrace these strange, weird, and uh, uh, occult ideas about the sub-Antarctic Nazi bases and you know, all kinds of things that are or it can be ascribed to science fiction or imaginative. Hitler survived, all that kind of stuff. You know, becomes a part of the occult mentality of the post-war world. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, where there's smoke, there's why people think, well, yeah. there's something there. There right. could be a whole lot more that we just yeah. don't know about. And that's one of the theories about foes in general in this country. When do we start seeing UFOs? Well, it was immediately after the war. Where did we right. see him? Well, in Washington State, in, in New Mexico, they become pretty thick. Well, what do we have there? We have proving grounds. We have Boeing up in Seattle, et cetera. They were bringing these prototypes, so one theory goes, for uh, and testing them. You know, They had things like there was a plane you know, that, that was a flying wing you know, but it was that resisted the detection by radar that the English had, et cetera. And so a lot of the things that we later perfected were indeed originally German prototypes, which is not as surprising when you think, well, Germany had more Nobel Prize winners. It had more PhDs per capita of any country in the world at the inception of the war. So then you take a a country that has that kind of capacity intellectually and put it under existential pressure, you know, you're going to come up with some ideas, which they did. And they are all still being used. Yeah. You know, we don't know what else we're in those boxcars <laughs> that right. may be in the next on the line, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I know that we're kind of running out of time here, but I have just a couple more questions for you, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So one, I'm going to kind of join the two questions together. There's this idea that's in some of this cult literature that there was a massive attempt, I think, and part of the Volkish movement, I believe, there's this idea that there was this massive attempt to sort of restore or recreate German paganism. And uh -huh. you note that there wasn't this large scale. And I want to ask you to comment on that and then take us back to the positive Christianity, because that mm -hmm. is the only religion stated in the official program. 
of the National right. Socialist Party. So, yeah, the, there was that. So let's go, and the studies have been made, good ones, that uh, there was probably around 4 million people in Germany who were uh, considered themselves uh, neo-pagans, pagans, who were actually interested in the reviving of the ancestral religion, if you will, of the Germanic peoples, et cetera. But that's a pretty small minority of 80 or 70 or million people when you're talking about. But it is a sizable number, and it's part of that reform movement. You know, but, but how, who those people were and what they believed is very diverse. You know, some who just were paganized Jesus, you know, that's the Aryan Christ. And that's part of the positive Christianity idea that, that Jesus wasn't Jewish, blah, 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 and, you know, all that kind of thing. So it runs the gamut from that kind of pagan Christianity to people who actually sort of were wanting to revive the old religion, which were pretty small in number. And because of the world... The German world, whatever, the world just wasn't ready to really understand that. I am myself an, an, an Odinist and a Germanic heathen. Okay. So I study these things with special interest and will note that the Nazis, for example, and the god of scholars in Nazi Germany said, oh, that would be great. But, that's, but and as he appears in the Eddas, in the actual literature of the old Old Norse literature is just too damned weird and dark and strange and unmanly. I know, you know, I mean, he does bizarre and weird things. He can't be, he's got to be from a foreign country. You know, he can't be a real German god, which they would see as a kind of a Wagnerian uh, Zeus, you know, with a horned helmet or something, right? They just, the world had learned enough about Germanic paganism in a real way to, to, to be able to embrace it with any kind of knowledge. So it was generally rejected. Hitler says, oh, these men and the beard and the whole, you know, old believing in the old gods, it just ruins it for me. That's crazy. You know, that's a completely rejected. Himmler and others were more interested, but again, it was not really in a position to be embraced. It just, the, they wouldn't accept what the, what the myths actually told them. It was just they were part of a 19th century manly man kind of view of what the spiritual life should be. And so they were completely unprepared for actual Germanic paganism. So that really didn't get much of any kind of distance. People like Guido von List in Austria prior to the, in the First World War, he died in 1919. It's, I'm a scholar of Guido von List, translating some of his works and so, and so forth. And it's, so studying him is very uh, interesting because you see that before he died, I mean, before the end of the First World War, he had positive things to say about Jewish people and the Kabbalah and how the people acted together and kind of shared ideas and about Freemasonry and so forth and so on. But then after the war and after he died, after the First World War and after he died, his followers who continued on with his organization would apologize for some of his previous writings because he just didn't know that the Freemasons were a Jewish conspiracy or he's had these positive things to say about the Jews and he just didn't know. And so the whole world of this kind of 
neo-pagan world had a, a substantial and, and fundamental change after the First World War. Again, going back to that trauma of the end of the First World War and how it changed the country of Germany and its whole attitude towards the, the rest of the world. And this was affected. Their ideas about all of these things were deeply affected by these events. And so that, that changed things quite a bit. And so the whole idea of neo-paganism or embracing the old traditions, et cetera, over such a few decades really went through massive changes, differences, and so forth. But there was no, people want to say, oh, it was a, I remember some commentator on the news when Ratzinger, the guy who was elected to be Pope, and so forth, and people say, well, Hitler, he was a member of the Hitler Youth, blah, blah, blah. And he says, oh, not, that, that was a whole, that was a pagan movement anyway. He just, you know, that was just, he was a, obviously a Roman Catholic. But anyway, he was just, again, that was one of the moments where I said, this is what's going on. They want to dismiss the Nazis as being pagan or satanic or whatever, not us, you know. And so I, that was really just an illustration of that point. And so the, the, that that was really part, part and parcel of the times. Well, thank you for that. And uh, sure. I, I think I would love to speak with you sometime about the German myths. And I know you've done work on the runes. I, I think that would be mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. The The last thing with this positive Christianity and Christianity mm -hmm. in general, didn't they, didn't the National Socialists also use Christian imagery in their right, the, propaganda? Yeah. Right, and the positive Christianity was a and it was a part of the National Socialist movements mentioned right. in the Twenty Five Points, and also they were a, a group, and I have pictures and stuff like that of them in the book. And uh, their fundamental idea was that that Jesus was a German, was a was a uh, Aryan. His father was named Pantera a Roman soldier, and so forth and so on. And he was actually not Jewish, et cetera. And, but a lot of it was sort of positive in the sense that they would go, and a lot of this was rooted in biblical criticism of the 19th century, right. deconstructing biblical texts and saying, this is not what it appears to be. It's not true. It's, it's something else is true. Etc. So these people were denigrating, bringing down religion, which they thought was important in the Nazis, because with their real agenda, positive Christianity is a stage, other things might be also part of it. But what they wanted to do was create so that the national, national socialism is to become our religion, you know, yeah. and that we are going to, to, to embrace that ideology as the new religion, but we cannot just reject Jesus, Christianity, etc. outright because the masses still believe in it. And so we can't do that. That's too radical. That's, that's counterproductive to our agenda of manipulating the masses, right, right. right? You manipulate your friends, not your, if you, if you alienate them, you know, you're going to start losing them. Right. So you always see it in a Christian context, at least, you know, as far as just your verbiage is concerned, so that you're not rejecting 
Jesus or the church. Or, so you work with them while trying to, at the same time to uh, undermine them. Although, of course, the churches, both Lutheran and Catholic, were cooperative with the Nazis on many levels. And of course, after the war, it's like, oh, what? We never had anything to do with that. We were persecuted by the Nazis, etc. But history shows that the, it was not quite that simple, especially then in the larger context of the centuries of anti-Semitism on both sides, you know, of the Lutheran and Catholic. But Christianity was considered to be, I guess you could put it, that it's kind of like the gateway to ultimate aim of equating national socialism with the total spiritual life of the nation. And so that's that ha, ha, it was clearly the ultimate aim and, yeah. and goal. They, they didn't want to be subject. Obviously, Hitler and the party doesn't want to be subject to criticism by the church. So we put them together. And that's what he created. Hitler created what was called a concordia of state and church. And it's the one that Germany still uses today. The way in which your tax money in Germany is distributed to the churches. You don't you don't pay to you don't tithe, you don't go to the church, you it's paid in a church tax. The only way out of that tax is to resign officially from the church and to perhaps have another one, you know, or, or atheism or whatever, but you have to resign from the church. It's it, to get out of that tax or to alter it, it's it's a destination of that money. Now, there's only two major Nazi leaders who actually resigned from the church, and those are Himmler and Hess, Rudolf Hess. So that kind of tells you the statistically, you know, as far as among those major leaders, most of them, you know, retain their church affiliation. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, that brings up a lot of things in my mind. And I will just summarize it as saying there's so much that I think we need to learn by looking very closely to all of these aspects of world history and national socialism, you know, and I think that's one of the great values of, of your book. You know, there's a I always kind of rephrase it, but there's a line I steal from a folk song by the singer Suzanne Vega, but I always kind of requote it too. We, we keep challenging the future with a profound lack of history. And I think, <laughs> I think we need to get that history in sure. to, to avoid repetition. You know, right, so, and to be ac accurate and 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 true yeah. in our in our analysis, and not simply project our propagate right. our own ideologies onto the past. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, Dr. Flowers, thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for this conversation. I really appreciated it, and I hope I can speak with you again sometime. I know that you mentioned you, you're working on another book. Is that going to be out? Do you have a, a release date or a, a no? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm probably okay. an, a, a year away. Okay. The book on Ernst Scherkel, has got. I have to have some. Someone else help me with it because it's going to have a lot of artwork and ah, okay. things like that, and it has to really look good. But my book on the the occult roots of Bolshevism is is out and available, okay. and I come out with books quite regularly, and so a lot of things. If we my whole corpus of available books, it can be found on, at a website called seekthemysteries.com.
Okay, wonderful. I will put a link. Let me yeah here to seek the mysteries.com yeah yeah i'll put a link for that in the show notes and the video description and i will also put a link to the occult and national socialism so that Mm -hmm. people can uh, that um and i can put a link into for the occult roots of bolshevikism (laughs) bolshevism Um, yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty good Pretty good companion to it in the sense that it's different, different ideas and everything, but but uh, things that we are uh, that would be worth thinking about, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think this is all very important work, and I am so grateful that you've done this. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank this. you. And I, I again, I hope to be able to speak with you later. I look forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And that's a wrap on episode 63 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or watch this on Spotify. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a moment to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. If you think a friend, family member, or coworker might like this podcast, please share it with them. Right now, that is one of the best ways to help me with this podcast. I really do need to grow my audience. And for anyone else who would like to contribute to this podcast and support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, I have officially launched a Patreon. There are currently four levels of membership, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shoutouts to members, members-only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com so you can be informed of all future live events. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit. <laughs>